Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Olcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Paul Jarvis. Paul is the author of a book called Company of One. So before we get into that, just a quick reminder that on the 20th of March, I'm doing a one-day masterclass event in London. It's at the Business Design Centre in Islington. And it's basically a chance for you to really whip your productivity into shape. So if you've read the book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, or even if, even if you haven't, then the idea is it's a full day where we're going to be going through some of the key principles of the book. We'll be putting change into action on the day, making some changes And uh, if you're at all interested in that, then you can find that uh, in the show notes. And also if you just go onto Eventbrite, uh, the website eventbrite.co.uk and just put in my name, Graham Alcott, you will find um, the details of the masterclass on there. So there are still some tickets. There's only 25 tickets available. So it's a really small, deliberately small, intimate thing because the idea is there's going to be plenty of time to answer people's questions, to deal with people's implementation on the day so that people leave at the end of the day with loads of stuff having changed and a whole new set of habits around productivity. So if you're interested in that, if you want to spend a day with me getting your productivity into shape, then check out eventbrite.co.uk and just put my name in, Graham Alcott. It's the Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass is the full title, so just put that in there and you'll find the tickets on there. So come along, look forward to seeing you on the 20th of March in London. So this week's guest is Paul Jarvis. Paul is the author of a book called Company of One. Really fascinating set of ideas in this book. Lots of contrarian thinking, which I really love. And um, really, I guess, to boil it all down, it's about how you think as a really small company and question growth. So we're going to get into that. We talk a lot about different ways to question growth. We talk about some of the, the traits that you need to think like a small company and be more agile. We also really get into some trashing of business sacred cows like passion and hustle and things like that. We talk a bit about envy and money at the end, which is um, always a bit of a taboo as well. So loads of good stuff in here. Here is my conversation with Paul Jarvis, author of Company of One. Cool. We're recording. I'm with Paul Jarvis. How are you doing? Good. How's it going for you? Uh, it's good. So it's, it's dreary and uh, a bit cold here in England uh, and it's the, the sort of late afternoon. I know, I know it's uh, morning for you over on, Van- are you on, on Vancouver Island? Yes, that's right. We have we have almost the same weather as the UK in the winter. Oh, really? Dreary, grey. Yeah. The nice thing about that is you don't get the the typical what I would think of as a Canadian winter, which is your sort of Calgary, like seven feet of snow in Toronto sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we don't get snow here or we we get snow maybe once every two years, something like that. Not very often. Which is probably similar to England, actually. So, yeah, that's probably a good, uh, good comparison. Um, And um, we're going to talk about your book, Company of One. And I think it's such a such a good topic for Beyond Busy and just links in so much to uh, a lot of the stuff that we cover on this podcast because, you know, es- essentially you're talking about um, running a company of one. So let's start straight at the beginning then with how do you define that? So this idea of 
of uh, running a company of one? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So first off, it doesn't literally mean a a one person business. I myself don't have a one person business. What it really means is that we question whether or not growth is required, because sometimes it definitely is, especially in the beginning. If we're starting at zero, zero profit, zero customers, we need to grow to something. But the, the company of one mindset kind of differs from like growth at all costs or growth hacking or um, that sort of thing because it questions whether or not growth makes sense at all times because I actually don't think growth always makes sense. I think growth should be a choice and I think the reason why a lot of people work for themselves or the reason why a lot of people are quote-unquote companies of one is because they want the freedom to choose whether or not they have enough, whether or not growth will actually benefit them or whether or not growth just puts them further into stress and more responsibility and more costs and more resources and, and all of that. So it's really just, a, it's really just a, a mindset or a philosophy to think about if growth makes sense and having a bit of critical examination first. Yeah, and reading your book, I, was, I just found my brain... Sort of scooting from the very macro um, machinations within my own business and what that means, right through to the very, uh, sorry, the, the very micro things there, right through to the macro things of what does this look like for society and, uh, you know, just some of the stories that we tell ourselves. And it kind of struck me that the idea, so you say at the beginning of the book, a company of one is one that questions growth. And I just wonder that as a society, we maybe need more of that as well, right? So just the whole notion of, kind of busyness versus what is enough and kind of striving for growth versus being happy with our lot are kind of, they're pretty fundamental questions. I think so. I mean, even just looking at <clears throat> the, the planet we physically inhabit, there are no infinite resources here. Same with, um, with money. Like there's no, like in, there's not very many things that exist that are infinite, but we treat it as such in business, which is weird because outside of business, rapid and unquestioned growth is typically thought of as bad. That's what cancer, like that's literally what cancer is. But in business, we think, oh, well, uh, growth at all costs, growth unending is such a good thing. And I don't, <laughs> it just seems weird that it's so different from anything else um, in, in life. And when did you start thinking about this? So there's a bit in the book where you talk about how um, you have this analogy of the, the red fish versus the green fish. And you kind of realize that you were the only fish in the, the pond that kind of thought this way. And everybody else, you know, when you think about the, the front pages of business magazines and websites and YouTube and <laughs> all the kind of, uh, you know, sort of role models that we're given around business, it's, it is so driven around growth, isn't it? And um <laughs> I just I wonder where that came from for you. Where, where did you start questioning that, questioning that from, and and sort of uh, what was the process of making that discovery that you were a little bit of an outlier? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always like the I, I was lucky enough to start a business um, a couple decades ago where it was I just found a great market fit for what I was doing, and so I was always busy, and I always had <clears throat> clients and. In a waiting list, and people would always tell me, like, you should hire some people. Like, you should build. And I was doing web design at the time. They were like, you should hire people. You should grow an agency. You could hire designers. You could hire developers and project managers, and and salespeople. And I always thought, almost like a petulant child, like, 
but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. Like, I actually really like to do the work that I was doing. Like, I like designing. I like interacting with clients. I like um, that aspect of the job. So I never wanted to promote myself out of a job I liked into a job I didn't like because I don't actually like managing other people. There are some people in the world who were born to manage others, and I'm definitely not one of them. And I realized this early on in my career where I liked the job, so I didn't want to get, I didn't want to hire somebody else to do the job I liked. And then I would just feel resentment <laughs> for that person doing the job I wish I did. But it did make me feel like, like you said, like an outlier because everything else in business, in the business world is, is taught that with success comes growth. Growth is the next step in success. No question. And I did feel like, I did feel like, well, why am I the only one who thinks like this? But I, I am also a writer. So I, and I write a newsletter, a, a weekly newsletter. I share an article that I write every single week. I've done that for six years. And I, I was probably about three years ago, I wrote an article and it was called something along the lines of why I don't care about growth. And I thought at that time, I was just going to, I was just going to share with my audience kind of how I felt because it was different from everybody else. I just felt like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to share with people why I make decisions in my business the way that I do, just so they can better understand it. They may not agree, they may not like it, but just so they have a like an understanding and perhaps some empathy. And I sent that article out and I usually get between, I don't know, 150, 250 replies to my newsletter every week. And this one, I got probably 1,200, 1,300 replies. Wow. And it was all people saying... I thought I was the only one who didn't want to grow my business, or I thought I was the only one who wanted to question growth at a certain point in my business. And I was like, this, there's like, there's a whole group of like, there's a, there's a large group of people. There's a whole group of people who kind of felt the same way that growth isn't necessarily the only thing to work towards. And I was like, why isn't anybody talking about this? And I went looking for books or articles on the subject. Couldn't find anything. So I thought, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to write the book on this subject. And that's kind of, that's kind of where it started was I thought I was alone in the, in this kind of philosophy in business. And then I just shared it with my audience and I got a resounding, I feel the same way from them. So yeah, I thought there was something there. And you talk about this like four, traits that you talk about that you think someone who is adopting this mindset of a company of one and like you say that can be someone who's you know not necessarily working as the only person who works in their business you might be employing a couple of people or you might have some freelancers or whatever and you might also be adopting this company of one mindset within a larger corporate too but you talk about resilience and autonomy speed and simplicity do you want to just talk a little, a little bit about why those things are important to this mindset and and what sort of particularly helped you land on those those four particular traits? Yeah, so I think with um, if if we look at business in, in like the startup mentality of growth at all costs, it it's very hard to be a profit focused business and a growth focused business at the same time. A lot of times we forsake profit in the present in the hopes that profit happens at scale or at volume, which I think is scary and risky. And I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurialism is inherently risky. And I think it certainly is if you approach it in that way. I think it doesn't have to be. So I started to look for the traits that uh, business owners or businesses had in adopting a profit first 
mentality and a mentality that business should exist over the long term where in startup world, typically founders are looking for an exit where they can sell the company at more than they spent to build it. Whereas I would never, I don't want to do that. I like my, I like the business I've built. I've done it for 20 years. I, I would like to keep doing it. So I, I started to find some commonalities in businesses, either like one person businesses or even businesses that are like 50 to 70 people, like the buffers or the base camps. And the first, and I think probably the most important one is resilience. And there was a study done by a guy named Dean Becker, who found that resilience is more useful for business success than education, training, or experience, which I thought was really, really interesting, especially since resilience isn't just some innate quality we're born with, which is good. It's something that we can work at. And resilience requires three things. The first is accepting reality, which seems like that's a good thing. We should accept reality because we don't have control over most of the things in our lives, in our business. And we should just be able to accept that we can only control the things that we can. Otherwise, there's a lot of stress and overwhelm. Second thing is having a sense of purpose, which again, not even outside of a business context, it seems like having a general sense of purpose or direction makes sense. Because even if things go wrong, or things are bad, or things are stressful in the moment, you still are working towards something greater than yourself that that kind of propels you forward. The third is the ability to adapt. And I think that really just comes down to the fact that we're never done learning. Things are always changing. Markets are changing. Business is changing. Customers are changing. We have to change as well. Like I, I look at the way I ran my business 20 years ago and the way even just the, like the technology that I used, so completely different than now. So unless we're continually learning and adapting... Things, things can go awry. And, and really the, the traits of a company of one are the traits of, uh, that I think any business or any business owner should have. Because if, if we're looking to keep things going for, for the long term, if we're looking to make a durable business, I think it makes sense. The other ones, um, the other three things, autonomy, speed, and simplicity, I think are also very important. But I think the resilience piece is like the, the key piece that needs to be present because then we can work at mastering a skill and then leading with a direction instead of commands, which is what autonomy is. And if your business is smaller or at a size that makes sense, it's easier to work faster. The bigger a company is, the harder it is to move quickly because there's just so much bureaucracy and red tape. And then simplicity is just... Simplicity isn't e- like simple and easy are very different, but simple requires a bunch of work in the beginning to set up, but then it becomes easy. So you kind of front load the work in simplicity. But once you have simplicity, simple rules, simple processes, simple systems, then it becomes easier going forward to manage things. It becomes faster to manage things. It becomes easier to solve problems and, and that sort of thing. And those are, those are the things that definitely need to be present for a, a company of one mindset. But I also think those are things that should be present for anybody in work, regardless of the, the type or scale of work that you do. Yeah. And the, the whole simplicity thing, I suppose the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, the kind of set up and go, uh, you know, sort of um, online learning products and, and automation and things where you put a load of work in up front, knowing that that means that either you can collect revenues or some things will still keep happening while you sleep or while you're even not there. Can you can you maybe give some examples of what that looks like if if that's not your, you know, if you're if you're maybe not like working for yourself, like how how would you view that that idea of simplicity if someone's working 
in a sort of you know mid to large corporate type organization and kind of wants to to think about that mindset of simplicity but maybe doesn't have that level of of autonomy really to to sort of make those kind of decisions for the for themselves in their own work for sure and i think that that um can come incrementally like it, it would pro you probably get shot down pretty fast if you went to your boss or your manager and said hey look i want to work from home and work flex hours yeah, right. and change all of the systems on our team to be more simple they would probably say no they would probably just be like this is not how we do things like I'm the manager. Um, but I think if we if we move slowly and iteratively towards that, and at every step we show management or or the boss or or the C-suite that, hey, these things that uh, we're suggesting are working or they're, they're positive for the business, then I think it's easier to to get buy-in. And I think the other thing is that a lot of bigger companies are are having to kind of move towards these traits because they're losing workforce. They're losing people to the freelance economy or to starting their own businesses because people nowadays don't want... Like business has changed in the way people approach and think about business um, fundamentally or philosophically isn't that they don't want to sit their butts in a chair from nine to five Monday to Friday and kind of slog along doing the work that they're told to do and being micromanaged by it. That, that type of work is, is hemorrhaging talent and employees at a rapid and alarming rate. Yeah. So I think businesses need to kind of adopt these mentalities where if they give their employees or, or members of their team a bit more autonomy, even if it's like small and incrementally at first, then those people are going to feel more ownership of the project. They're probably going to do better work. They're going to have better results. And they're, they're going to feel like they want to keep doing that work if they feel like they own it. And I think a lot of times a discussion needs to be had that autonomy and anarchy are different. I think, I think a lot of managers or C-suite folks feel like, oh, if we let our employees have freedom, then it's just going to be anarchy and things are going to run amok. Where autonomy is really just, it's leading with direction. It's not full anarchy. It's more just, this is, this is the outcome that we're working towards. You tell us how we're going to get there, but this is still like the business needs to meet these like key performance indicators or these metrics. We're going to let you figure out how to reach them or work with you to figure out how to reach them. But we still need to work in a, in a direct, otherwise it's just chaos, right? And that's not what autonomy is. So I think sometimes that needs to be, uh, a discussion needs to be had there where it's like, if you say, oh, well, I can have, I can work remotely, say one day a week. It's not that working remotely means that you're going to the park or going to the movies. It's that you're working. You're just working in a different environment and possibly an environment with less interruptions because you're not sitting at a desk where people can walk over to you and interrupt you at all hours of the day. Yeah, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but I, I know certainly in the UK, there's still this mindset that working from home means kind of sitting around in your pants and drinking tea and not really doing very much. And <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like for me, it's the the exact opposite of that. It's the, it's the, it's the time and the space to that you create in order to do your best thinking and to do the stuff that you really need to be uninterrupted for. And I just think that's such a, such a big cultural shift that needs to happen for that to become actually valued rather than kind of tutted at and seen as being this 
awful thing that you know is for slackers exactly and i think that the proof is in the pudding with it a lot of times where if you get buy-in for say one day a week and then you are doing your work at home really well because you're not being constantly interrupted by other office mates then people will see like okay this is like things are getting done if you give people the autonomy to to work then they own that work and then they typically do a better job and that that's a win for everybody and they can typically get it done in less time as well because i think a lot of times work fills up the space we give it so if if you tell somebody like you have to work on this from nine to five it's going to take them from nine to five to do it maybe it's four hours of work but who cares how long the work is we shouldn't be punished for efficiency we should be rewarded for outcomes and i think when when the mentality shifts from that from these are the hours you're given to do the work to this is the outcome we want from you then it doesn't matter it's just like if you're a freelancer you shouldn't be punished for being efficient like i would never charge by the hour if i was doing client work because i work really fast I would charge by the deliverable and say like, hey, if this is what you want, this is how much it's going to cost to get to this outcome. So if it takes me two hours, if it takes me three days, it doesn't matter. I think there's a a parable or possibly a true story about Picasso sitting in the park and a woman comes up to him and says like, hey, draw me a picture. And he draws a picture on a napkin that takes about five seconds. And she says, well, how much do I owe you for it? And he says like... $1,000. $1,000. And she's like, but it took you a second to draw it. He's like, no, it didn't. It took me a lifetime of learning to be able to draw that thing in a second. I shouldn't be punished for efficiency. I should be rewarded for the, the knowledge that I have and the expertise and wisdom at my disposal to get the job done. The outcome was the, that, th- that the thing was done. For sure. My first ever business was washing cars in my local neighborhood. And um, I remember one day starting, you know, you learn so many lessons from little childhood businesses like that. Like, so <laughs> I had too many customers that I could, couldn't meet demand. And so I had to take on somebody else. So I'd, I'd hired my friend and we then went around to some of my regular customers. And with this one particular guy, me and my friend were just bored. So we said, let's just challenge ourselves. Like, how quickly can we wash this car? <laughs> so we washed the car really quickly because, you know, we knocked the door, really impressed with ourselves. And the guy didn't want to give us the money because he thought, oh, well, they've just taken such a short amount of time that it can't be worth it. So <laughs> it just shows you can learn these lessons from, from very young as well. Yeah. I also wanted to just take that same idea about looking at the results of work rather than the time that it takes to do things through to the sort of radical conclusion. So you talk about in the book, you did some research around results only work environments um, or rows as are otherwise otherwise known. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So what is a results only work environment? Yeah. I mean, it's basically the the type of work that, that we were just speaking about where the, the result is what matters. The outcome is what matters. The, not how you do it or not when you do it, which is kind of a departure from the way management has worked, say, 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago, where it was very much command and control. Management would say, this is the work we need you to do. This is how you're going to do it. And by the way, we're going to watch you do it at every step of the way. And that might have worked um, in the past where people just accepted that this is how work works. But nowadays people are, don't really, don't really enjoy that, especially given the rise of like uh, knowledge based work, which is where a lot of us, um, 
do do the things that we do, where that might work on an assembly line where every single person has to do a specific job in a specific way in a specific time because the next person down the line needs to do their work in a specific way at a specific time. Whereas if you're doing work in, in, in other fields, it doesn't, like, it doesn't have to work that way. And I think nowadays we just like the more that we can focus on the, on the results or the outcomes and not necessarily that, Oh, you didn't work from nine to five. You worked from maybe eight till two and then you took a break and then you worked from six till eight or something like that. Where, why does that, why does it matter when that happens? And the, 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 the results of the results (laughs) Uh, focused uh, work environments, the results only work environment was that people get work done faster. People get work done better. People feel like they, they feel more challenged and engaged by the work and want to continue doing the work. And so it, it just kind of makes sense to, to kind of challenge the way work works because it doesn't always, it doesn't have to be, well, this is the way it was done in the past. This is the way we should do it in the future. It's like, what if there are better ways? And and a lot of times there there really can be. Yeah. And you've got some great examples in the book. A um, couple of things, particularly around um, the company Basecamp, which I thought were really interesting. Um, did you get to go and spend time at Basecamp? Did you hook them up online? Like, how did you make that that connection? Yeah, I just, um, I'm nowhere near Chicago, unfortunately, which is actually good. It's pretty cold in Chicago, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, no, I interviewed Jason Freed uh, over the phone and, and we talked. Uh, yeah, we talk quite a bit um, just about the way because they're a company that's kind of challenging the norms of work. They work in such a different way, and it's such an interesting way to work. And it and it's very it's been very profitable for them. They've been profitable every single year of business. They have almost no turnover. Same with Buffer; they have almost no turnover. So no no staff turnover. You mean like people don't leave? Yeah, people people don't leave because they they found a way to. They basically challenged every single aspect of of work and and found what's best not what's this is how it's been done so this is how we do it which i which i found very interesting a lot of people have found it very interesting they've written three books on the subject and they treat like one of a great example of that is they have a semi open office not entirely but they treat it like like they basically have library rules where you can't talk loudly, or if you do have to talk loudly, then you go into a, a sound booth or a, a, a private meeting room. And so the office is is very quiet. There's not a lot of movement. They don't have any shared calendars, which is, I think, the, the bane of Jason's existence is, is shared calendars, which I think is great. So what was it? What's his thinking? What's his thinking behind this whole idea of not giving anybody in the company access to shared calendars? Yeah, and it's something I definitely agree with. Where somebody else in the bit, somebody else in the company could see, like, oh, well, Bob has uh, an hour with nothing on it. Like, I'm going to go talk to Bob. Where that hour with nothing on it is probably time that Bob has to sit down and focus on doing work. And so if people just look at your calendar and see like, oh, there's free time, it's never free time. You're at work. You're probably, you're probably working. You probably have some deep focus work that needs to be done that you just haven't blocked off. And so they're very much anti meeting and anti just like, I'm going to pop in. They're very much opposed to real time because real time t- outside of catastrophic emergencies which can happen maybe once or twice a year for them 
there's nothing that needs, um, nothing is urgent. There's nothing that needs immediate assistance. So they try to, and Buffer works the same way, where they just expect employees to reply within a day to other people. Like, shouldn't be, people, other people shouldn't be able to interrupt whatever you're doing to try to get something from you. I love the thing that Jason Fried said as well, um, that he says his job as a boss is to give each of his employees eight uninterrupted hours a day. And just to basically interrupt people as little as possible. And that's how you get great work out of people. And I think like, certainly for me, the idea of having a boss again, I mean, I think I'm kind of unemployable now. I've been sort of out on my own for nearly as long as you, but I think um, the idea of having a boss that lets you do that, I think he'd just be like everybody's fantasy boss, wouldn't he? Yeah. His, his, yeah. He, his job is to protect his employees time, which Make it makes so much it's so counter to the way business works, but when you think about it, it makes so much sense, and that probably leads to why they have almost no turnover in their business. Why employees tend to it's like Hotel California, you can go in, but you can never leave, (laughs) but in a good way. And I'm also stealing the thing uh, that they do around the weekend check in, so during the summer, they do a four day working week. Uh, which I'm very familiar with. So I think Productive works a four-day week as well. But the idea that when people have their three days off, then, you know, if you've done something cool, then on the Monday, go in on the intranet and and kind of share a picture of that. So you still get that kind of sense of um, sort of camaraderie, even if you're a person working remotely or if you're not in the office on the Monday or whatever, you can kind of see what everyone else is doing on the weekend and stuff. Just a really simple little thing, but just kind of builds that kind of camaraderie around the organization as well. So I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, I like that, especially because they're completely remote. So it's a good, it's a good way to just kind of have, um, yeah, a sense of, a sense of, it's like a virtual water cooler where if you were working in an office, you would go in and have a little chat <laughs> at the beginning of the week. It's, it's, it's kind of mimicking that. Yeah, and we've got, we've got an office, but then we do have like some of our, our team are remote as well. So it, we're, we kind of find that we're always straddling both of those things at the same time. But yeah, doing things more where even when you have an office, acting as if you're a completely remote sort of networked organization, I think probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, then the remote people don't feel like their noses are out of joint if um, yeah. if everybody at the office is doing something fun and they're sitting at home on their computers sure. <laughs> and they're not part of that. And then if you act as though the remote people are the default rather than we're doing things especially for them or we're having to make exceptions, I just think that's a, a much better way of thinking about it. Um. Just before we sort of wrap up on the, I want to get on and and talk about some of the, it kind of feels to me like there's a few other themes in the book or a few other ideas in the book where it really sort of highlights some really good contrarian thinking, which I really love. So I wanted to kind of bash through a few of those, but just before we sort of finish on the main topic, um, you tell a story about the difference between growth and simplicity between two different apps, one called Pinboard and one one called Delicious. And I wondered if you wanted to tell that story. I kind of feel like that's a really nice way of illustrating the sort of the bigger picture theme of the book. For sure. And I don't remember all of the specifics because there was a lot of things that happened. But the, the gist of it is that Delicious and Pinboard are apps that do the same thing. They let you share bookmarks and there's a social component to them. There's their software. But Delicious went through i think it was three or four they so they grew their business they sold the, they got investors they sold the business 
another business bought and sold the business, another business bought and sold the business. And it kept getting kind of bigger. Yahoo owned it at one point. The business was valued at, I think it was like 30. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like $30 million. Whereas Pinboard, and that, that was kind of the trajectory, growth and exit and investment. That was how Delicious worked. And they had millions of users, but that's basically the the business side of things was was, was that was growth and investors and acquisitions. And Painboard on the other side was pretty much the exact opposite. It was one eccentric programmer, and I'll butcher his name, but it's something like Matt Thieg Siglowski. Um, and it was just Painboard was always just him. And he built the software so it would be easy to run as one person. He did the pricing and support so it would be easier to run as one person. And it kept growing, but growing very slowly. It was growing organically. And at the end of the day, delicious, these big companies like Yahoo couldn't get delicious to work in a way that they wanted it to work. And it, it was bought and sold for millions of dollars. And at the end of it, um, Pinboard, the guy who owned Pinboard bought Delicious for something, I think it was like 30 or $35,000 and shut Delicious down. And this was over the course of many, many years where there's this company that was growing quickly and being bought and sold and acquired and worth millions of dollars. And then on the other side, there's this one guy making software that does the exact same thing doing well, being profitable. And at the end of the day, he ended up buying that company for pennies on the dollar that it was bought and sold for and shutting it down and then um, moving all of the users that wanted to over to Pinboard. And it's just such a, it's just such a great uh, story to show that small or um, question growth or profit-driven growth can, can really work because the, the other way is so inherently risky. Like just because, just because a business is valued at millions of dollars doesn't mean it's actually worth millions of dollars. It just means that one investor or one investment company has said, I think if everything goes according to plan, which remember resilience shows that it doesn't, but if everything goes according to plan, this business is worth all of these millions of dollars when profit probably doesn't show that. User growth probably doesn't show that. And there's no other data that shows that it is worth that money. It's just, it's worth that money if, if A, B, C, D on to, on to Z goes right. And so I just thought that that was such a great story to show that small, um, and profitable at the end of the day can outlast um, almost anything. It's uh, almost like the business equivalent of the hare and the tortoise, isn't it? And you know, <laughs> yes, it, I, I think what strikes me about that story is the guy that's um, that's you know kind of sat there running pinboard for all those years. He's probably getting online and reading about delicious being bought and. That what what would probably happen around that is there would be so many different parties and so many bits of triumphalism and it really feeling like delicious is the place to be all the way through that journey and so it really kind of struck me of how how resilient and and just almost like how stubborn he would have to be to just be like nope this is the path <laughs> like because there must be a lot of temptation when you see a business that you could be and you see a business that uh, feels like your business it's going off and, and seemingly creating these amazing headlines, right? That must that must be a, a tempting thing to, to to kind of drop your own strategy and go follow them. Yeah, I honestly think a lot of business is envy and ego, though. Like a lot of business decisions come from 
that place, which is understandable. Like that's human nature um, to have envy and to have ego. But I also think it's a bad way to to run a business to, well, I would seem like a more legitimate business owner if I increased my staff and if, or if I took on investors and it, they valued the business at this much. Like that doesn't seem like a, a good reason to, to grow, but it, it also seems like that is a lot of why growth happens because people feel like, oh, well, it can't really be a legitimate business if it's just me or if it's just myself and a few other people. When that's, and even going back to Jason, the CEO of Basecamp, he's like, people don't think back to, like, people don't think back fondly to the good old days of being a massive corporation. They think back to the good old days of like <laughs> being small and scrappy with like one or two other really, really excited co-founders when they could move really fast. They could do things that, that aligned with their vision and their purpose and their mission. And, Yet we try as hard as we can a lot of times to get past that or to get out of that as quickly as possible and to grow and to build into something much more. Um, what would your advice be for me, just for a minute? So I think uh, it's really interesting, this, the timing of this conversation, because at the weekend I was having a, a conversation with um, a friend of mine who also runs a business and he will remain nameless for the purposes of this. But basically we're both saying... There's so much talk about growth and startups and, and everything else. There's very little talk in business press and in articles and stuff about, you know, what about businesses that are kind of stuck in the middle, right? So you're not small anymore. You've, you've grown beyond being a company of one in any um, sort of form. You've got a team, you've got a wage bill that you've got to deal with. And you know that just on the other side of that should be bigger profits and, and, and a kind of bigger company. But you're kind of stuck in, in that sort of slightly slower growth than previous growth kind of stage. And I, I think for me, I totally, so much of the book really resonated with me because like you say, you do hark back to stuff being simple and being able to kind of really have autonomy and simplicity and kind of focus on some of that quality. But like for me, I'm running a business where, you know, I like because because we're doing training in companies, we're, we're, we're going in and uh, working with people face to face, it's quite difficult to see how we can have like exponential scale without growth. And obviously, we're doing a business that we really believe in the purpose of it, because we're helping people to be more productive and hence less stressed. And that just feels like a mission that everybody needs right now. So like, have you got any thoughts on what I could do to either use this mindset to power through growth and achieve more simplicity at the other end of it? Or are you going to tell me to kind of uh, scale back the business or, you know, I'm just kind of really interested in your thoughts there. Yeah. I think every business, um, has an organic size that makes the most sense in terms of profitability and sustainability. So a business like Airbnb, I would never say, well, that should be a one person business and they should have two properties that are available for rent because it doesn't like that doesn't make sense in the market. And so I think every business has a, like an organic size that it should grow to. And maybe your business has, ha, has reached that size. And at which point it becomes more a matter of <clears throat> figuring out like, one, is this business profitable? Like, are you making enough to cover your expenses and your wages and all of that? And does it need to, like, would more growth serve you better? Like, would it make you as a business owner happier? Would it make your employees less stressed out if you were bigger? Would it make your customers happier with the, the product you offer them? 
if you were bigger, and I don't know the answers to that, but I think a lot of times it just comes down to like if things are working and they're like obviously there needs to be some growth to offset things like churn and inflation like things can't just stay the exact same and i think that's one of the the main the main things in the book and that the the third part to the the mentality is or the third part to resilience is the ability to adapt and we have to adapt to things like we do need to probably make a bit more money year over year it doesn't have to be 10x or 100x but if inflation is around 3% then we've got to keep making about that which isn't that much but it's still definitely gro- uh, like some growth. And so I yeah, I mean for you I would without knowing all the aspects of the business I would think like is this like wh- at what size are you the most profitable and the least um stressed? Mm. Like maybe it's the size you're at now, maybe it's slightly smaller, maybe it's slightly bigger, maybe you do have to grow. Right. So it's always, and, and that line is never, unfortunately, that line is never constant. That line needs to be questioned probably once a quarter, at least once a year, where it's like, is where we're at now enough? If yes, then what can we do to optimize for that? And if no, what can we do to increase things to grow? Because in that case, growth does make sense. The point of the book isn't that growth is bad. It's that growth needs to be questioned and we need to put critical thought against it, which kind of makes sense for almost everything in life. Like having critical thought before making decisions seems like a good way to operate in every and any aspect of life as opposed to just let's just run in this direction blindly. So yeah, I think a a lot of the mentality of the book is, is critical thinking, which is useful, but also difficult. Like it's hard to be introspective. It's hard to think about the business when you're in the weeds of the business, making it run, making it stay operational, keeping the clients and, and doing all of that. It's hard to spend time thinking about the business, but that's actually, especially as a leader of a business, that's one of the most important things. And to bring it back one more time to Jason Freed, that's kind of his, um, in in speaking with him, that's kind of what he said, the the role of the bosses is is to think about the business Mm. and to make space in your day and in your 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 business work to think about the business and to think about how it's being run, what can be done better, what can be cut, what needs to be grown. Because that's the like, but it is difficult. Like I said, it it, it does require like you have to work in the business and work on the business as well. So it does require um some work there. For sure. And I think maybe one of the things that I'm pondering is that probably in terms of profitability, we might be better off at this stage being a bit smaller. But also in terms of the purpose of the business and helping more people, we'd benefit benefit from being a bit bigger. So then there's a whole, almost like a contradiction there, isn't there, between, you know, am I going to favour me over the next however long? Or am I going to favour our customers and and the kind of things that we, could, that we would have the capability to deliver if we were bigger? So, yeah, there were so many times where it was so funny because we'd just written our, our three-year strategy there's so many times when I was reading the book, where I was like, "We're totally bang on track. This is the the, the perfect sort of endorsement of the strategy." And then at other moments, where I was like, "Oh no, I really need to go back and rethink that." I think that I, I think that's common, though. The the wanting to reach or wanting to help as many people as possible. But I also think that it's hard to do that well at scale. And for me, I've always kind of wanted to help 
less people better than more people not as well. Mm. Right. Like I think that a lot of times our ego tells us like in order to make a difference, we need that scale. We need that massive global reach where a lot of times like, but then I think it, it, we almost abstract um, humanity at that point where it's like, well, I want to help a million or it's like, if a goal is like, well, we want to help a million people. It's like, it's hard to like, if you put a million people in a room, if there was a room big enough, not even football stadiums are that big, but if there was a room big enough to see like one by one, a million people, that's a lot of people. Whereas if you can help a, a smaller number of people, well, that ripples out. If, if they're helped and if they're fulfilled, then they will do the same for others. Right. And it's just like, it's funny. I always come back to, I was a touring musician for a really long time. And sometimes, and we, we did well, but we weren't like top of the chart. Like we were nowhere near like huge household names. And we would be on, we would tour North America once a year or so. And some nights, we'd be playing shows and there'd just be a handful of people there. And that can get, that can get disheartening sometimes, right? Like that can get like, Oh, I'm not, my, my, my reach isn't big enough. Like I wish we could reach more people with the music or with the business or with whatever it is. And a few times people would like, we'd be playing shows where there'd be almost nobody there. There'd just be like the old guy at the bar who's just there every night, regardless of the band and a handful of people. And there'd be sometimes in doing that where we would get, and one time specifically that I always remember where uh, somebody came up to us after the show and it was a show where there was maybe like five people the night before it was probably like three or 400 people. And this show was like, Oh, there's only this many people. Like, uh, this is this kind of is very disheartening. But then somebody and I, I still remember this is years ago, somebody came up to us after the show and was like, well, I just want to let you know that your music um, really helped me get through a really rough patch in my life where I was considering ending things and, and things were going really badly for me. And your music wasn't what made me not stop, cons- made me it didn't make me stop considering it, but it, it helped. And it was part of my journey to, to get to the other side, to get back to the light, to get back to uh, a positive place. And it's like, it, if, if I can make that huge of a difference for one person, like how is that not enough? Like how, in, in what scenario is helping one person in, in that way, not enough to feel like, I've done something right in my business. And, and at that point, music was my business. Like at what point is helping one person not enough, right? Like when we unabstract humanity from like, oh, I want to reach millions or I want to reach thousands or I want to reach everybody. If it's like, if we've made a fundamental change with, with one person for the better, like how is that not the best thing in the world? How is that not enough for anybody else? Absolutely. I think also it, might lead us quite nicely into one of the other things I wanted to talk about, which is hustle. And I think, I think particularly if you're in a business where you feel like you want to help more people and you're and you're sort of striving for that, then you can get into this kind of sense of, um, I guess, workaholism or just wanting to just keep going and do more and more. And you have some pretty harsh words to say about just the whole <laughs> notion of hustle. And I think for me, I do think that this hustle thing at the moment particularly the, the, you know, the kind of Gary Vaynerchuk message of uh, just work your face off for 23 hours a day and all the rest of it. I think it's quite dangerous for a lot of younger people to hear. Um, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on hustle and workaholism? It builds bad habits. 
Like that's the long and the short of it. It, it, If your business requires 23 hours a day to succeed, one, is that successful? I would disagree (laughs) that it is. And two, if you're setting your work up to only be able to function and be efficient at your peak performance, that's not sustainable. A sprinter can't sprint a marathon. Not even the, not even the best marathon runners can do it at a sprint, right? And I think that it's one, it's horribly short sighted because it's so, um, unsustainable. But two, it builds habits where you see, well, I needed to work 16 hours today to, to get everything done. So I need to work 16 hours tomorrow because today it worked. So tomorrow it has to work as well. And we set ourselves up into these habits where it's like, oh, well, business takes 16 hours a day. And it's like, how, how can you work, especially like, it's definitely possible in your 20s to do that. But in your 30s or 40s, where I'm now at, I, it's not really like, I, I couldn't work 16 hours a day and be able to have any, any valid thoughts in my business the next day. And so I think that if busyness is our default state, if hustling is our default state, it, it can't last. And it's detrimental to the work that we have to do. Like I value sleep as much as I value income because I know that if I get a good night's sleep, I'll be able to work the best. And I think that there's just this whole... Like it's just like when, when you're on an airplane and if something they always like in the beginning, they say like, if the oxygen masks drop, then put yours on first and then your loved one or your dependents on next. Because you have to take care. Like I, I, I see health and, and wellness as, as a function of one, being able to properly um, care for my customers because I need to make sure that they're, they're well served. So they're happy and they continue to pay me. And two, I see health and wellness as a function of my income. Because if I'm taking care of myself, if I'm getting a good night's sleep, if I'm only working I, 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 an efficient number of hours, if I'm eating well, if I'm exercising, if I'm doing all those things, then one, I'm taking care of myself so I can, I can work without uh, pain. But two, I'm taking care of my mind. So if I need to be creative on demand for, which is pretty much what I need to do for my work, then I have this, the space to do that. I have the ability to do that. I'm not just tired and stressed out. And so I think when people like uh, Gary Vee or even Elon Musk tweeted recently that in order to make any difference, you need to work 80 hours a week. Like it's why why are you saying that? And like he has a he famously has a couch in his office because he doesn't have time to go home to his family to sleep. And he won't take a vacation because the last two times he took a vacation, his two of his rockets exploded and he doesn't understand, probably from lack of sleep, the difference between correlation and causation. Like his rockets didn't crash because he went away. His rockets crashed because of some other factors that were probably out of his control anyways. And so when we kind of say that this is the way to go, this is the de facto way to work, this is the de facto way to get ahead, we're, we're giving people garbage information, right? And people always say like, oh, well, that's okay for you because you've seen business success. And it's like, no, the reason why I do well in business is because I don't hustle, because I take care of myself, because I work probably five, six hours a day at most uh, five days a week, because that's where I hit my peak efficiency. And that's, I never give myself too much on my plate to do. 
And that's why 20 years later, I'm still successful in business by my definition and everybody's definition of success is different. But that's why I can sustain this is why I probably can sustain it for another 20 years, not because I have to work, but because I like it. And the reason I like it is because I've never put busyness or hustle um, with any with any bit of importance because it's, it's not important to me. I would rather go slowly. I would rather be the, just like Jason's new, just to bring it back to Jason, one bonus time, I guess. His, his latest book, Calm Company, uh, really speaks to this where if busy isn't your default state, you can get more work done typically and you can get better work done, which is, which is what matters. And I, I was also just going to throw in another example I came across recently, which really scared me was um, I read this article about the, the rise in 20 something YouTubers burning out and you yeah. know, they, they get this, this kind of sense of success and their view, their video views are going through the roof and everything's going really well. And then, you know, typically a couple of years down the line of servicing that they burn out. And one of the things that a lot of them talked about was the fact that the, the algorithm of YouTube is just notoriously fickle and mysterious. So they feel like they've got this very mysterious and strange boss called the algorithm that they have to please all the time. And, you know, the algorithm really favours when you post every day and the algorithm really favours when you reply to comments and, you know, all these kind of factors that just meant that they were felt they felt changed their desks, even though they're, they're young kids making really good money and they just feel totally trapped and, and busy by that. And it, I, I guess it kind of uh, takes that onto an, an even bigger extreme, doesn't it? When it, when uh, when your own brain is the thing you're trapped by, which is probably the Elon Musk thing, isn't it? Really, and your own ego. Yeah, that's one thing. But if you're trapped by an, another person's algorithm, that kind of feels like <laughs> like a really uh, dark place to be, I guess. Yeah, it, it feels almost like sci-fi or, or 1984. Like it feels like such a an overwhelming thing to to have to create con- that kind of content every day. It'll give Charlie Brooker something to do on the next Black Mirror for sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, one other, one other sort of um, sacred cow that I thought you slayed really well was the idea of passion and like following your passion in business. And you're quite down on that idea as well. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of times we we have it just in the opposite order. Where I think passion is great. I'm super passionate about a lot of things, but I think the this kind of drive or this uh, this tired advice to follow your passion is hard because like, what if I don't have a passion? Like that's stressful to, how can I follow my passion? I don't know what it is. Or like, I'm super passionate about one thing, but passion can be really fickle. <laughs> like in relationships, you're really, really into somebody in the beginning and then things kind of calm down or, or, or dissipate. I think instead, I think that passion comes from mastery. Passion comes from getting to a place with a skill where you really understand it. And can, like, I was never passionate, and this pisses so many writers off. I was never passionate about writing, never wanted to be an author growing up. But as I, as I started writing and as I developed writing as a career, I got really into it. I got really interested in it. I got really passionate about it. But it wasn't until I was doing same with web design. I never wanted to be a web designer growing up. But because I did it and because I, I, I worked at mastering that skill, I, I really started to enjoy it. I really started to see the, the, the beauty and the nuance uh, of the tiny little things that you wouldn't know until you were doing it. And I think that 
I don't think that there's like the one true predetermined passion that we're all meant to have in each of our lives. Like that just seems like, I don't know. <laughs> it just seems silly. And it also seems stressful if we don't know what that is and we don't know what to work towards. Where instead, I think we should just work towards things that we, we have that we, that are in demand. If it's work, cause we need to be in demand to, to generate money. And then we just need to see like, is this something that is, is good? Is this something that's enjoyable? Is this something that I can really like get into? Because I, and then the other side of things, I think that passion is, is, is completely egotistical, especially in business. If I, I don't see how just doing something that you like lines up with what business is and business is servitude. Business is serving other people for money. It's serving people in a way that they want to give you their hard earned money. And if all you're doing is following your passion, then it's hard to, like, it feels very entitled to think, well, I can just get paid or I can be profitable with whatever I'm passionate about. Well, guess what? I'm passionate about watching Top Gear on, on TV. Like, I'm not going to get paid to do that. I'm super passionate about watching it. I really love watching car shows. Nobody's going to pay me to do that. And that's how a lot of people feel like this entitled feeling like, I'll just find this thing that I'm really interested in and, and somebody's going to pay me to do it. It's like, that's not, that's not how business works. Business is serving other people. Business is listening and empathizing with and then serving other people. You can't just get paid to do whatever you want. That's not, that's not what work is. That work has a totally different definition. So I think there's just so many um, incongruencies with this follow your passion mindset where it comes from a super entitled place, but it also comes from an illogical place because it's hard to know um, kind of what you're super, what you're going to be passionate about in the long term without doing those things, without trying those things, without mastering skills. I think passion, um, Cal Newport argues this in um, So Good They Can't Ignore You, that passion is a side effect of mastery. Passion isn't the precursor to mastery. Mm. So you get you 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 develop that craft, and then and then through that you develop the the passion to keep going and keep learning. Yeah, by by serving by serving other people, whereas just wanting to follow your passion is inherently egotistical. I was totally the same as you, by the way, on writing. So it was never a sort of big <laughs> dream when I was a kid, but yeah, just got totally hooked by doing the first book, and that's been kind of the main focus of my time and energy ever since, really. Um, yeah, just wanted to finish with a couple of things that I feel like are kind of taboo subjects in some ways. And I think you, you tackle them really well. So and the two being envy and money, they just feel like two things that particularly British people are very loath to talk about too much. Um, so I'm going to do that for the last couple of minutes. Um, so do you think a lot of this is ultimately about envy and about the sense that you need to be competing with the people around you. And I, I know you mentioned in the book, this idea of being at the dinner party and someone says, how big's your business? And, you know, um, feeling like mm -hmm. you have to be big to be significant in some way. Um, and I know you, you talk about envy as being the ulcer of the soul, which I really love as a piece of wordplay as well. But do you think envy plays a huge part in this whole kind of quest for bigger is better? For sure. I mean, I grew up in a British household. My family's from Manchester. So even though I don't have an accent, I feel like I got a lot of the the, the British um, mentality on this. Um, but yeah, I do think that, and like, I think it comes down to like why you start or want to run a business in the first place. If it's to look good for other people, that doesn't seem like a good enough reason. Like running a business is difficult, 
running a business that just looks good to other people doesn't feel like it's enough to, to, to keep it going. And it also feels like even if things go well and you're running your business just so it looks good to other people, just so you're keeping up with the business or digital Joneses, then if things go well, you're going to end up with success. And that success is going to look like the version of success that somebody else has. And that might not line up with your version of success. And it also seems to limit freedom where if you're just working from a place of envy, if you're just working to keep up with the the business digital Joneses, then it just doesn't seem like you have the freedom to make choices that work for you or that 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 work for the business that you actually want to have. You're you're working towards a goal and towards um, a, a track or direction. That's just what other people have said is what success looks like. And for me, I, I've always wanted to have a business that supports my life and not a life that has to support my business. So I would rather look worse to some people because like, let's be honest, like my business is me sitting in my pajamas in a home office which one, it grants me a ton of freedom because it costs almost nothing to run my business. But two, it doesn't look good to other people, just like the dinner party. If somebody asks me not what I do for a living, but how my business works, and I tell them that, it doesn't look that good. But, all, like, but also, like, why do I want to be at a dinner party where I'm being judged by the way I run my business? Like, I want to be at a dinner party where we can just laugh and, and chat about things that are important. Not about that kind of thing. So really, the, the key to that then is uh, is finding different friends, <laughs> finding hanging out with different people. Exactly, but also freeing yourself from the from like the way that society thinks business should work. Because I know a lot of people that run small businesses that make more money than people that run huge businesses. I mean, just because you're bigger doesn't mean you're more profitable. Right. Or just because you're bigger doesn't mean you have more freedom. Typically with growth comes less freedom because you have more responsibility. And I've always wanted to have a business that has the most freedom and the least amount of responsibility while still being profitable. Absolutely. And, and I guess that leads us on to the final one, which, which was money. And I guess at the heart of all of that is how do you, how do you make that judgment about how much money you need to earn and you talk about in the book the idea of having an enough number and being able to really get down and define how much is enough and you talk about there's a uh, I think it's a friend of yours who was a surfer who gets to August and if he's made all the money that he needs for that year then he just clocks off until Christmas and then starts again in the new year and I wondered how you how, how do you go about creating your own enough number and how how for anybody listening to this, how would you go about, how would you help them going about creating that enough number and, and changing that whole dynamic around just always wanting more, more, more? For sure. And I think the problem is that more, it, it, does, it, like it doesn't have, uh, like what is more? Like how much, if you want to make more money, how much is more? Right. Like it's a it's like running towards the horizon. You're going to get sweaty, but you're not going to reach the horizon. It's going to feel like you're making progress. And so when our goal is to just have more of something that how do we know when we've reached enough because we because there's no way to reach enough because there's always more of something or we think there's always more of something. And that's why I think enough and determining enough, which I'll explain in a sec, but I think determining enough is kind of the counterbalance or the antithesis of unchecked growth. Because 
it, it exists in the finite instead of the infinite. And in terms of determining enough, one is different for everybody because everybody has a different cost of living. Everybody is dependence or no independence. Like I, there's too many factors, but for myself, I look at like, can I, can I live a, a, a comfortable and simple life? Like, can I cover my mortgage? Uh, can I, like pay for putting food on the table? Can I put money into savings? And there comes a point where if I was making more money, it wouldn't improve the quality of my life, right? Like I have, like, I think even, even with speaking about mortgages for a sec, I know this is a taboo subject, but I don't really care. Like I was approved for a mortgage that was double what the mortgage that I took out on my house was. And that's not because the bank is nice. That's not because the bank manager was like, oh, I like that Paul guy. It was because they're like, if we give this person a bigger mortgage, they're going to have to pay us more interest. We're going to make more money. And do I need a house? Like, obviously, I need a house. And this is what enough is. Like, I need a house that's, that's big enough to have a home office for one because I work from home and to, to be big enough where I don't feel I'm super claustrophobic. So I don't want to feel super claustrophobic. Like I couldn't live in a 150 square foot tiny house. I think it's a cool idea. I think it's neat that people do that. I could never do that. I'm very claustrophobic. So I need a house that is big enough that can, that, that I feel comfortable living in, but like, doesn't need it like, five bathrooms or 18 bedrooms. Like how big is a big enough house, especially with bathrooms it takes so long to clean bathrooms. Oh man. <laughs> having, having more bathrooms is not a good thing. More is not better in this case of bathrooms. Um, so just things like that, or, or like, do I need a car that costs this much money when a car that costs half the price will still get me from A to B kind of thing. And it's just questioning all of those things. And, and this is what minimalism is. I think a lot of people have this notion that minimalism is being okay with less. And that's, that's not what it is at all. It's being okay with enough. It's if everything has value and it's like a hundred thousand things, if everything is value and, and gives you a better life, then have a hundred thousand things instead of 36 carefully arranged like tchotchkes in, in your house. So I think that enough really is just like finding a, a level of comfort without excess. And so having enough um, like money or, or profit is about finding that level of comfort without excess where at my buddy Clee, the, the surfer guy, um, the, the story you told that he stops in August because he's made enough, um, to, to cover his life, to put money in the savings, to pay for his surf and climbing trips. And if he made more money, it wouldn't make his life better at, at a certain point. So he doesn't bother. Mm. Like the, there's no point. And then that gives him the space to recharge his batteries, to, to, to take a break, to, to think about things and to come back to work refreshed and to come back to work like eager, like he's ready to get back to work at the start of the next year because he's taken a break because he's, he's lived a, a full life. Right. So I think that, that, that in thinking, if we don't ever think about enough, we're never going to reach it because we need growth to go from zero to something. So we adopt a growth mindset at the onset because we need more because more is better at that point. But if we never question that, if we never think, well, this isn't serving me anymore, there's no end. There's just that line in the horizon. So if we think about like how much is enough, how will I know when I've reached it? What will change for the better if I do? then we can start to come to better conclusions and put a bit more critical thought into into the whole thing. For sure. And I think just 
in sort of helping people how to define that enough number and 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 start to think about it differently i mean i'm a big fan of um do you know mr money mustache the blog yes i do yeah so i mean that's the sort of theme that runs through his work as well you know this this whole thing of, of work how much you need and and then retire early and stuff like that and and even though i've read lots of his blog posts i've probably never taken 45 minutes to an hour and just sat down and kind of mapped that out you know just with my own thoughts and just working out that's probably the next step for me are there any tools that you know of out there that would help with that like or or different resources that you could point people to that would just help people to to get their heads around growth either in a kind of business sense or that kind of sense of enough in your own life as well yeah i mean other than company of one the book (laughs) um i i think (laughs) it's critical thought like i think that the the resources making space to think about these things for yourself and that kind of introspection is difficult. There's a study done um, at a university in the States where researchers put people in a room. They didn't tell them what the study was or they told them the study was something else. And they didn't have their smartphones or any other stimulus, but there's a button on the table with an electric shock that was attached to their body. And they said, you don't have to press the button, but if you press the button, you'll get a shock and it'll hurt a little bit. But by the way, you do not have to press the button. You can just sit here quietly most people press the button <laughs> because most people would rather have any stimulus, even if it's painful, than sit alone and think about um, themselves or their lives or their business or, or anything like that. So yeah. I think it's the most important work we can do. And I don't know if there's a tool to do that. It's I just, just wondered if there's any working spreadsheets or something like that. That was kind of where I was going with that idea, but maybe you don't need that. Yeah. No, I think, I think it just requires thinking about like, well, t- one, knowing, knowing what you, what your budget is every month. I think that's super important. Like knowing how much you're spending and knowing if you have to be spending in all of those places, but like start a free Google doc. Like I wouldn't spend, <laughs> I wouldn't spend money on that. I keep a spreadsheet for um, money in, money out for everything. And then I look at it every few months and say like, do I need to be spending all of this money or do I need to be making more? Like, that's the thing. Like if you don't have enough, you either need to spend more or make less. Both of those require figuring something out personally. And of course, most people, the whole point of, of the, uh, the sort of fallacy of growth is that they point to how can I keep working and earn more rather than ever thinking about spending less as well. Right. So that's yes. And then as you make more, you spend more for most people end up spending more anyway. So the net net is that you don't actually have more money you're not at more profitable because most people, as they make more money, they spend more money. So they still have the same amount. Whereas if you find out what your enough is and you figure that out, and if you make more money, you actually get more money that you can put in the savings and retire early and do all of that fire stuff that Mr. Money Mustache goes on about. Absolutely. So um, let's just wrap this up then. So tell us uh, where we can get hold of the book and how they can connect with you and uh, just whatever else you want to mention before we finish. Yeah, so the book, obviously, Company of One, Why Saying Small is the Next Big Thing in Business. It's available on Amazon or anywhere else you get books. I have a, a UK publisher, so it's available in most bookstores over there as well and around the world. And the newsletter that I talked about that I uh, send an email out every week is called The Sunday Dispatches, and that's at pjrvs.com. And that's the best place. Like I'm not really, I don't really do much on social media. I'm not really anywhere else, but spend most of my time with my newsletter and with um, talking to people on my newsletter. So that's the best place to, to reach me and to see what I'm working on and to chat. 
Cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, being on the call. I know you mentioned there that you work five hours a day, so to take up just over an hour uh, feels like a privilege. <laughs> so thanks so much for for sharing with us. And uh, yeah, good luck with the book. It's on, honestly, I really really enjoy reading it. So um, I'm, I hope it does really well. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And this was this was great to chat today. Thank you. So thanks again to Paul for being on the show. That's the second one I've done now, which I've done down the line. Um, Paul, obviously, on Vancouver Island. It's pretty difficult for me to get face-to-face with him. So uh, really uh, interesting experience just learning how to do those. It is slightly more difficult, I think, than doing them face-to-face. Um, obviously, in some ways, it's easier, you know, not having to travel. But just, like, not being able to read body language and stuff like that, I find uh, much more difficult. But hopefully uh, that doesn't impede on the podcast too much in terms of it just feeling like a kind of natural conversation so thanks again to Paul for being on the show thanks also to Mark Stedman my producer on the show and his podcast platform Podient and also uh, thanks to Think Productive my sponsors for the show Um, last reminder that the Masterclass tickets are on sale it's the 20th of March in London please do go and have a look at that and also just to flag up so we've had some really good sales in the first month on the new Productivity Ninja book so there's a new edition five year anniversary edition a whole new chapter called How to Stop Messing About on Your Phone Uh, so that's been selling really well so if you see that in shops and it's a green cover you know that's the new one and that's also on Amazon just look for the one with the green cover Amazon haven't quite shaked out the purple cover yet Uh, But you will find it. And if you just put in Productivity Ninja updated into your Amazon search box, you'll find the correct one. I'm also excited that the new book is up there ready for pre-order. So Work Fuel, the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition is up there right now on Amazon. You can go and pre-order that. Please do. And uh, we've been getting some really great comments on that one. So really looking forward to that coming out on the 7th of March. But in the meantime, it is available for pre-order on Amazon. Go and get your copy of Work Fuel, the Productive Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. Um, that is it from me. That's all for another episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of Beyond Busy. So until then, take care. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podientproductions.com.